You're listening to the World Radio Day 2017 podcast series on SOAS Radio. Hello, this is Anna Ruth here at SOAS Radio. And as you may or may not know, World Radio Day London is coming up on the 10th of February. In anticipation of the event, I'm here in the studio to talk with an important figure in community radio and community media here in the UK, Peter Lewis. Peter Lewis has been a senior lecturer in community radio at London Metropolitan University, a visiting research associate in the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. He co-authored the book, From the Margins to the Cutting Edge, Community Media and Empowerment with Susan Jones, and has written The Invisible Medium, Public Commercial Community Radio, promoting the profile of radio in the academic world. He's also contributed and led research on a long list of fascinating projects, of which he will hopefully talk about more, most recently the wonderful mapping project of Radio Garden, as part of Transnational Radio Encounters, which brings together researchers from media and cultural studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Okay, good morning. Let's get right down to it. My first question for you is, how did you first become involved in radio? Well, I worked in television, actually, and then I got to manage a small community TV station down in Bristol, which was owned by commercial companies. It was the time when cable companies were hoping to get um, more um, profit from um, pay TV and so on. Uh, the government at the time said, do a bit of local television, get some brownie points. Uh, when the government changed to a Labour government, they closed down these stations very abruptly. I had to give, uh, at a week's notice, I had to sack 100 volunteers. <laughs> How do you sack volunteers? Uh, this was something that had been going very successfully. Uh, and the anger and the frustration, but at the same time the creative creativity that we found in Bristol, in Swindon, in Sheffield, in the other places... Uh, brought together a lot of people who said, um, you know, we've got to do something about this. There's got to be an ability to speak at a very local level beyond what is offered by uh, local radio at the time. And while on the one hand there was a thrust to get Channel 4, which was successful, um, those of us involved in television uh, actually used the community radio route because at that time radio was a lot simpler to do. Nobody had phones, you couldn't um, record stuff and images and so on. So anyone can speak and recording at least was um, quite usual in those days. So we pushed for community radio and it took us 30 years to get it. Uh, Britain is one of the last countries in Europe to have actually officially recognised community radio. So in the course of all that as an academic and an activist, uh, I... Um, uh, worked in different levels to see if we could get it, and uh, we have eventually. Very nice. All right. Um, well, I guess that ties well into the second question that I have for you. Uh, since the 1980s, when it began to be broadcast more widely, what role has community radio played in London and the UK, and what changes has it seen in recent years? Well, um in the, t in the long period when we didn't get community radio, there was some important piracy went on. Um, there was our radio in the early 80s uh, where a number of different groups came together and managed to exist for about a year before they were busted by the police. Um, Amy, uh, Alternative Music for You, worked in North London. There were a number of other things. Uh, not so much the piracy in, in London tended to be more to provide 
other kinds of music that you weren't getting on the BBC and commercial radio. Um, but uh, out of that came uh, more strength, protest and interest in alternative ways of doing things. And finally, there were uh, the Community Radio Association, now the Community Media Association, extracted from the regulators' uh, permission to have short-term licences. Um, it's a long story, but briefly it enabled groups for about a month maximum to, to produce radio. The idea came from Australia, actually. Uh, and um, that built up quite a lot of experience. Um, and finally, uh, under the new um, Ofcom, uh, pioneered by the Radio Authority, I think it was about 2003, uh, some 20 access radio stations were called. Interesting, the mainstream people wanted to call it access because they thought they were doing community radio. Well, not really. I think one should be clear that community radio is not uh, BBC, it's not commercial, it is non-profit and it is owned by a community who are represented in it. And a community could be, of course, a community of interest and uh, a geographical community. So uh, some stations got licences uh, in London, but mostly outside. And when it was proved to be a success, there's an important report by Everett uh, back in the um, early 200s, uh, 2000s, which um, shows uh, the success of that original 20 stations and suggests there should be something like 8 or £10 million made available to allow the growth. We've now got 200 stations and they have to exist in um, pump priming funding on the quarter, uh, sorry, half million that was available uh, 15 years ago, which is a bad state of affairs. And uh, it's very tough in the community radio sector in this country at the moment. So uh, links with other, I mean, what's been important, I think, to keep the spirit going is the foundation of AMARC, that's the French acronym for Association of World Association of Community Radio Stations in 1983 and uh, AMARC Europe in the early 90s. And now I think the most um, one of the most important organisations is uh, the CMFE, that's the Campaign uh, for um, Community Media in Europe, which uh, brings together stations across Europe and uh, fights battles with regulators and protests and uh, is an important resource. Great. Uh, sounds like quite a struggle. <laughs> Um, it usually is. Yeah. <laughs> radical alternatives. Yes. <laughs> uh, your work with Transnational Radio Encounters looked at the use of radio by minorities whose identities are linked to social, cultural, or linguistic communities. How can radio give people a voice who otherwise might not be able to have representation on the airwaves? Well, um, Straight off, it's very difficult in the mainstream to do it. I mean, the BBC does has, have a nation channel, but on the whole, you find minorities represented in community radio. Community radio stations are often a refuge for all kinds of minorities, as you've just said. Mm. And um, it's in that area of community radio that uh, you'll find minorities best represented. I think I should explain that Transnational Radio Encounters, a three-year project which was... Um, funded by a European Union with one of its uh, agencies called HERA, which stood for the Humanities uh, in the European Research Area. And typically these kinds of funding agencies will every three years put out a call, that means an invitation to groups um, to apply for funding, research right. money. And um, the condition 
usually in European funded projects, is you've got to work with at least three other countries. So Professor Golo Folmer in the um, University of uh, Martin Luther Wittenberg in Halle, Germany, had the idea of putting together transnational radio encounters in answer to a call called Cultural Encounters. And he brought together a team of six people. Uh, there were two in, uh, in Denmark, Aarhus and Copenhagen, Germany. We've got Utrecht University in Holland and University of Sunderland and London Metropolitan University with the six. And four of the uh, colleagues looked at mainstream, mostly public service radio, historically. Of course, in the early days of medium wave, uh, radio was astonished people by crossing borders mm -hmm. and being heard all across the world in certain conditions. Um, they were looking at propaganda use of radio during the Cold War, and again now maybe, <laughs> uh, but um, looking at, for instance, the challenges to public service broadcasting um, from digital you know, and internet uh, developments. But uh, Caroline Mitchell and I in, in University of Sunderland and, and my university um, having worked for a long time in community radio research and practice, actually, Caroline was the founder of FEM-FM, which was the first women's station in Bristol in the um, early 90s. Uh, and as you say, I've, I've written and researched about it. So we wanted to see to what extent this idea of transnational applied uh, at the community level. And basically, it doesn't, because the identities that people uh, feel uh, uh, strongly about and part of themselves are not so much national at least we have to say until recent developments I mean people uh, have links across uh, to other communities where the struggle is about education health uh, green issues anti-nuclear protests and so on many community radio stations have begun with such uh, single issue subjects and then attracted okay. people who have other things they want to say how we developed in the tray Transnational Radio mm. Encounters, we uh, call tray. it Trey. Trey, yeah. Trey. Trey Project. What we wanted to look at was particularly language, which is both a bridge and uh, and an obstacle mm -hmm. uh, where communities are concerned. I mean, long-established uh, uh, migrant communities in this country obviously uh, are now are bilingual, but their children are losing the, the mother tongue. Mm. So such... Uh, community broadcasters are interested in broadcasting at least some t some of the time in the language to um, involve the younger generations. Uh, but of course, if you're a, a refugee uh, or a newly arrived migrant, language, uh, the language you're surrounded with makes it impossible to operate. And so it's very important to have a station that is broadcasting in your language, which in and tells you your rights, the places to go for help and so on. In the course of this project, three years, you know, the whole refugee crisis has become very important. Uh, in our last conference in Utrecht last July, we had a session in which uh, we involved um, uh, a station manager from Peterborough, uh, who, as a migrant originally, has become um, somebody who, who in, in, a, in a town where uh, there's a very large amount of uh, uh, immigrant population and resistance to it, um, by those who now believe we should put the shutters up. So that station has an important role to play. He would talk to Utrecht about his experience. We had the um, refugee radio uh, internet station represented, which is based uh, geographically in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And um, locally in uh, the Netherlands, there was uh, somebody who is a Syrian journalist who is now working with a community uh, television radio station in um, 
in Nijmegen. Uh, they all talked about the uh, things that a, a station can do to help this new huge problem. Now, uh, I mentioned the extent to which a feeling of national identity doesn't really work in community radio. But unfortunately, the pressure of migration uh, in Europe at the moment has given rise, of course, to a right-wing nationalistic approach. And it is now uh, something one ought to contend, or uh, we find being, uh, being contended at the local level by minorities uh, whose identities still are important to them. Sure. Even if, you know, perhaps especially to contest the right-wing pressures to get, uh, let's just say, to, to, to stop the flow of, of, of refugees. Yeah, I think that's a good transition into the next part of that question, mm. which was, can community radio in some way remove people from the content bubbles of the internet that you get caught in, where you're just getting loops of the same information? Hmm. And it can can it present a circulation of more diverse ideas? I think uh, community. First of all, uh, the physical co-presence of people in a community radio station is very important. I've heard station managers refer to the fact that as different groups come in, uh, they meet each other, talk, wait uh, their turn, and find out more about each other. And that doesn't happen in the bubbles you're talking about. Sure. Uh, um, an example would be in Bristol, there's a station called Radio Shalom Salam, and the, uh, the station manager there has, has said that uh, more important almost than the juxtaposition on the schedule of uh, Jewish and uh, um, Muslim programming is the discussions that go on beforehand as to who has the space on the station, and people have to compromise and, and get to know each other's point of view, which is very important. Great. Um, Okay, so the next one, um, can radio be used for political reasons? Perhaps quite broad. Can it be used to hold those in power responsible, or is this better for different forms of media? Well, it's interesting in this, uh, this moment when social media has become so important and we've got a president about to be uh, inaugurated who is using Twitter every night in, um, to make policy statements. Um, and of course, any radio station now must have um, use of social media to reach out, uh, and, in, and in particularly to have a conversation with people who are who are um, their listeners. Um, but uh, of course, uh, um, historically, community radio has been very important politically. I mean, way back, the grandmother of community radio, we think KPFA in Berkeley, California, um, was. Uh, attacked by the Un-American uh, Activities Committee of, the Con of Congress um, because it was upholding ideas like uh, homosexuality, as it was called in those days, and um, uh, various positions that were contrary to the McCarthy right-wing uh, drive. Um, and uh, more uh, in, in Europe, for instance, in, in Italy, the uh, in the 70s, for instance, the uh, radical left... Um, used radio very strongly to try and uh, counter the position of mainstream radio, which is really dominated by the right wing. Uh, um, in France, similarly, uh, after um, or during the right wing administration that preceded Mitterrand, the socialist president who came in in 1981, there was a lot of strong protest. And interestingly, the radio was used to defend... Um, uh, the workers, the unions whose members were getting um, 
uh, made redundant in the steel industry and so on, unlike here where in the mining dispute of the mid-80s, radio was never really used except in one instance, which you'll find in the radio garden, actually. Ah, OK. So, uh, yes, politically it's important, though I think the British... uh, have never really uh, used it. I once attended a magistrate's court hearing in Highgate where somebody was up for being um, found by the police to be pirates and the police evidence was that those who were discovered to be broadcasting were asked, uh, is this political? And they said, oh no, it's just community radio. And that really sums up the British position, I think. It's mostly about alternative music, I said earlier. But yes, I think it's an important... uh, space and platform and it has been for women particularly mm-hmm. uh, they've perhaps been the you could say minority in the sense that women aren't represented sufficiently on mainstream anywhere in papers journalism politics and everything so that women's use of community radio across europe has been uh, very strong since i suppose the uh, early 90s great okay Um, I guess you touched on this earlier when we were talking, when you were discussing immigration, but maybe there's something you want to add to it. The next question is, this theme for this year's World Radio Day is transitions. Can you reflect for a moment on how radio addresses certain global transitions, such as migration, but also climate change and health epidemics? Yes, um, again, historically, take a station like Radio Drakland, just south of Strasbourg, uh, Dryakland is the local language meaning um, three-cornered land, an area which um, the capitals of the various countries, France, uh, Germany and Switzerland, disregard. And um, there that station started with a protest against a nuclear um, power station being built and uh, the site was occupied. And then again, typically, it attracted different other groups who wanted to have a voice and a platform. So I think... Um, Green Issues has always been a strong uh, element. A station in Ljubljana in Slovenia, uh, Radio Student, which is not just a radio, a student radio station, it's the name of... Um, they've been uh, looking at green issues. I think you'd find in most stations across Europe that's important. Um, <clears throat> health epidemics. I'm not sure it's been used in this country for much, but I remember um, when the Chernobyl cloud came across Europe, um, and finally uh, across to North America and all the um, nuclear stations started venting so that they could get rid of some of their stuff and blame it on the Chernobyl cloud. Um, an AMARC meeting in uh, Vancouver that year, that would be 1986, was addressed by Rosalie Bertel, a Canadian nun who's written a lot about this and actively protested. And she talked of community radio being an alarm signal for humanity mm. and and it was the only form of radio that was talking about that at the time the mainstream state radios just um, weren't allowed perhaps or didn't want to get into that issue in those days now we're going to have to see mm. how community radio particularly in the states maintains its green interest what do you believe are the most important uses of radio in the future oh that's an impossible question that's a phd <laughs> I'll pass on that one. But I still believe coming together collectively as well as Mm. remote connections over the internet and social media are important. So I hope this kind of station continues. So this one is for the students out there. If they're interested in getting involved in radio projects, where would you recommend they start and what should they watch out for? 
Come to Suez Radio for a start if you're in Suez. Um, go to any of the radio stations across the university. This is what I was telling my students in London. Get involved in the student radio station. If you want work experience, volunteer with other stations, and there are plenty, whether they're broadcasting or on the internet, where you can put it on your CV that you've worked. And above all, listen to radio. Uh, I find, and I, I'm not alone in, among radio teachers in, in Britain, uh, most people, of course, now download what they want to hear. It's the kind of audio bubble uh, that uh, people live with. Sure. And very few people listen to speech radio before they start. we start teaching it. So I um, drive people to I force feed them with Radio 4 <laughs> uh, and Resonance, which is one of the best community radio stations. Um, very contrasting. So uh, listen get involved, and that will enable you to get more deeply into things. There's plenty of literature now, too. There's a Radio Studies Network, which we started back in um, 99, I think, 98, uh, and uh, it has a network, Radio Studies, hyphen studies, which you can engage with, find out about the meetings and so on. That's all for my questions, but if there's anything that you'd like to add uh, about uh, Trey or um, anything that important that's happening right now, please feel free. Perhaps we haven't talked about the Radio Garden, actually. Caroline Mitchell and I had previously been used in, uh, had been involved in projects that used uh, interactive um, mapping, which, for instance, a smartphone would pick up hotspots where um, data had been put down in visual and audio form. Um, And we'd been pressing the techies in the team was to this, uh, sorry, was this COMAP part of that Yes, project? indeed, yes. Okay. Have you looked at that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, mm. really fascinating stuff. Mm. Um, and again, in the University of Bristol, I've been involved with, in fact, after that Bristol uh, cable station I mentioned, we've, we've digitized some of the archives and put them uh, in a way that uh, people locally in Bristol can pick up on some of the history and see some of the stuff they produced all those years ago. Um but uh, I can't remember. Which one. Oh yes, origins. Is this all right? You're going to do cutting and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So um, Caroline, Caroline and I were pressing for this kind of thing that might, for instance, light up across Europe those stations of particular interest, LGBTQ or peace stations or green and so on. Um, in the way that, for instance, you can still go to a city centre and you press a button and you see where the museums and the libraries are and so on. Uh, Then that became focused on a a physical exhibition at Hilversum, which is right near Utrecht. Hilversum, that station known to nostalgic uh, people who uh, remember seeing it on the dial in the old days, old radio stations. Hilversum was an important one. Uh, There there was going to be an exhibition physically where people we thought would come into a booth and see some kind of uh, map and perhaps look for a station they wanted or even put in a station that they knew of which wasn't on the map. Then that got turned by some very brilliant um, technical or digital design teams into what is now the Radio Garden. And uh, actually the techies um, jumped the gun a bit just before Christmas. Good time to launch something, of course. So we had 10 million hits in the first 10 days on this site. But... If you look at the Radio Garden globe, you'll see a large areas underpopulated um, in uh, Africa, 
and in um, Southeast Asia, um, China. So there's a lot of work to be done and we can still go on feeding it. I spent last week looking at community radio stations in Canadian North where First Nation people have a lot of stations that aren't on the map. So, um, you know, we're going to improve it as time goes. But for the moment, it's great. It's thrilling. A lot of people are really enjoying it. Yeah, it's really fun to play with for everyone out there who hasn't heard of it. It's called the Radio Garden. And you can access radio stations all around the world and listen to them live. And you can get some history and you can get some stories. So you click on the left, the top left to get the different modes of listening and jingles. All right, that wraps it up. Uh, thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Very, very lucky welcome. to have you. <laughs> good luck with SOAS Radio and good luck with the radio, World Radio event. The World Radio Day London event will be held on Friday the 10th of February in the Brunei Gallery at SOAS University of London. For more information, search on Facebook for World Radio Day London 2017 and sign up for the free event on Eventbrite.